Well, in total contrast to the Tholian web, I was expecting to not like this episode. Actually, this is pretty legit. I will admit the only real reason I remember this is because, A, I remember the ending being kind of stupid, which it is, admittedly. Not as stupid as the original intent, though, oh my gosh. And B, the main villain of the work. You know, parentheses, asterisk, parentheses. So originally supposed to be Kor instead of Kang, but they couldn't get him. Apparently Kalikos really did actually want to play Kor here, but, you know, how acting is, commitments, etc. He was apparently working on a film at the time. So he couldn't do it, so we came up with Kang. Michael Ansara plays Kang and actually does a really good job of it, so I'm not really complaining about that. We also got Susan Howard, also known as the other name I didn't write down, who plays Kang's wife. So that's pretty good, too. So we've got decent guest stars, which is, which is always a huge plus, and indeed kind of the you know pulsing heart of Star Trek, as I've said many times before. And we've got a weird episode to talk about. So what to, I, I hate to ask this once again, but which type of episode do you think this is, right? Of the various types that I've been bringing up as we go? This episode was written by Jerome Bixby. You may remember him as the guy who did Mirror Mirror, as well as By Any Other Name and Requiem for Methuselah. A weird list to be assured, but, you know, Mirror Mirror is awesome, and I do like this episode. It was directed by Marvin Chomsky, who you may remember as the guy who directed And the Children Shall Lead. Not that that was his fault. And All Our Yesterdays, which we're not at yet. So they rush down. It's like, okay, there's a colony. We've got to save the colony. What do we do? Okay. It's a colony of 100 people. Over 100 people. D did this place just get colonized? I mean, that is a very small colony. In fact, I'm surprised that even the colony ship didn't have more people on it than that. Maybe it's one of, like, it's just a town of the other millions or thousands of people? I, I don't freaking know. I mean, anyways... Kirk is, of course, very angry. Ah, how dare you do this? We must destroy them for doing this. And, of course, Kang shows up and is like, Ah, you have lured us here and you've, you've attacked my ship. You destroyed my crew. How dare you? And in the background, parentheses, asterisk, parentheses, is just kind of hanging out there. I want you to remember that. They show the entity very quickly. I'm just going to call it the entity because it's easier than saying parentheses, asterisk, parentheses each time. So they decide to take the hostages because that's how that works, right? Well, I've got your crew. Go contact your ship. Your ship is now mine because I have hostages. For the first time, and I do believe the last time, we actually have a method of dealing with that. A little emergency thing. So, okay, beam us up. Okay, sure. And then they do the separate beaming thing, which works out really, really well, actually. I'm a little surprised this has never been done before. I'm not even sure it'll be done after this point, now that I'm thinking about it. It's a great tactic. Either way. So they go up, and okay. Got it. Well... That was easy. No problem. Um, so then we see another... F so they start beaming over the survivors of the Klingon ship. Okay, that makes sense. And we see a Klingon woman. Believe it or not, the only reason I'm even mentioning this is this is our first Klingon woman right here. And since she's played by Susan Howard, she's actually pretty legit. She, She's not the best. Even to, to, to jump ahead substantially in the episode, even much later on when she has been convinced that they are in the right and that they should be unified against, parentheses, asterisk, parentheses, she's still being led around by the typical female grab spot by Kirk. And it's like, dude, what are you doing? Isn't she a science officer? Isn't that... Anyways, I'm, I'm getting off topic. So this then leads to some obvious rancor. Now, for once, this is being done very in character, kind of the opposite of Tholian Webb. Although, 
that's actually not true. Castolian Web Arvone was being affected too. That just occurred to me. I don't mean to keep comparing these two. It's just that's really been sticking with me how I didn't care for that. Either way, characters are being demonstrably out of character here, including McCoy. We know who did it. It's Klingons. We know what they're like. Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, and we see McCoy desperately trying to save Chancellor Gorkin's life over in Star Trek VI. Huh. Can I admit something? Just out of nowhere. I know, but I wanted to mention this at some point, and I want to do it before I forget. I've been really in the mood to rewatch the original, the, the original Star Trek movies because of going through the TOS. I'm not going to. I don't have time. As soon as I finish recording, I'm going to have to immediately get editing and rendering, and I'm going to have to go immediately back to streaming. I do not have time to just sit and enjoy and relax the films, but I'm really in the mood, you know what I mean? You, you do know what I mean? Some of you? Maybe someone knows what I mean. Anyways, I'd probably just nitpick, or not pick, I'd probably cherry pick a little bit, do two, three, four, six, which is my usual path. So, okay. Um... This is an interesting little tidbit that I know is totally unconnected and in no way intended to be part of this, but, parentheses, asterisk, parentheses, I keep forgetting to call it the entity, is taking them out of the galaxy as fast as it can. Now, eventually this turns out to be kind of a thing where the dilithium crystals are breaking down and they're going to strand the ship, which thankfully never becomes an issue again for some reason, even though their dilithium crystals are super cracked, so they might actually be kind of screwed and stranded in space, but whatever. But considering that Zero is currently outside the galaxy, trapped there, it's kind of interesting in hindsight, the idea that, you know, Asterisk is trying to get to Zero, right? It's food for thought. I wonder if there's an audiobook version of the Q Continuum series, and if so, how it pronounces Asterisk, which is, what I think, how it's only going to pronounce it now uh, going forward. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So, Kirk... As it's racing off, all these bulkheads come down, and the bulkheads are super resistant to phasers and everything. They can't cut through it, even though they literally try to cut through the, the walls and the floors. And then Kirk decides to come down and confront Kang about that and tell that to his face. Of the many things that I like about this episode, this is the weirdest thing. Hey, uh, sworn enemy who I may think have committed horrible acts against me and I may still currently be hating. Um, did you know that I am in a much weaker position than I was? I just wanted to let you know that. Thanks. Okay, bye. I get the idea that he was trying to interrogate Kane to figure out what's going on. But still, this is just a weird scene. And of course, the only reason it exists is so we can have our first really, really, really on-camera overt demonstration of Asterisk's power when it turns the local stuff into swords that they can use. By the way, I didn't write down all the examples, but they actually have, like, different types of swords, depending on who's picking it up. Like, Sulu gets a katana, for example. Just And, of course, obviously, Scotty gets his claymore. I just thought that was a kind of cool thing to mention there. So, the reason I bring all this up is they show Asterisk in the teaser, in the cold open, before anything else is demonstrated. And they also show the characters acting just a little bit out of character. And, of course, Chekhov being violent, violently hateful. and All of that is at least explainable. Right up until McCoy, or not McCoy, excuse me, Chekhov basically insists on being murderous towards them, which is a little bit over the top. And then McCoy, McCoy is the one who argues, we know it's Klingon, screw him. Anybody who's watched the series at all knows as of that moment, yeah, okay, something's up. And we've already seen Asterisk, right? multiple times by that point. 
What I'm trying to say is that this is not a mystery episode, because the mystery is already solved within, I'd say, about the first three or four minutes of the episode. So it's not a mystery episode. Okay. Well, clearly it must be a threat, right? Because now we have an opponent to overcome and to save the ship. And certainly there's some validity to that. This is when we find out that so they, they do the sword fight. Not bad, actually. One of the better fights of Season 3. In fact, there's another fight later on, which happens basically at the climax when they finally decide to stop fighting, which is also not too bad. Both of them do the same thing. Uh, they use the hallway set for good effect to give them a decent amount of room to maneuver and have the fight happen. It's pretty decent. I like it. They even do this cute little thing where you know the, the fight starts off in... Uh, the prison area where the Klingons are being kept, and then they f they back out through the door, and then they would cut, and now we're out in the hallway, and the fight just kind of keeps going. It's it, Like I said, it's one of the better fights so far, so I'm with it. I'm with it. Cool stuff. We also find out that Chekhov has no brother, in case you didn't figure out what's going on already, and we find out that there are exactly 38 Klingons, exactly 38 humans, and both of them have swords, and you're getting the gist. And there's just this overwhelming amount of information on what's going on. Once again, destroying the idea that this is a mystery episode. McCoy goes on this horrific rant. Scotty, Spock, and Kirk start raging at each other. Even Spock loses himself for a second. At first, I didn't like this scene, because I'm like, why is Kirk the only one unaffected? Except he is affected by it. What instead I see makes perfect sense. You ever been angry? Like, really angry? You don't think straight when you're actually angry, especially when you have a temper flare-up, which I do distinguish as a different thing, but the same concept applies. You're not thinking straight, and you could say things you don't actually mean, and you could do things you don't actually want to do, and you could look back and think, why would I ever have done that? God, that's just so, that's so not me. And I don't, ugh, the very thought just weirds you out, right? I bet several of you. Frankly, I bet all of you know what I'm talking about. Even if you have to go back to when you were a kid. So the idea here is that Spock and Scotty, in the moment, can't really control themselves against each other. Kirk sees what's going on and gets in the way because he's external to that. It's easier to spot that in someone else than to witness it in your own self. And if it's pointed out, that's a good way to diffuse, to be like, Oh, you're right, I shouldn't do this. Right? right? You kind of see the idea here? This also then shows that Kirk is still affected by it. He's just not affected by it in an antagonistic version towards them. Just in general, he's just turning into this kind of a person. Kang also, this is important, Kang has been getting some evidence of his own. They don't show the whole thing, but he do, does flat out mention what kind of, what kind of luck supports our battle but denies us victory. Either way, this then leads to something I am legitimately astonished got into this episode. Chekhov tries to force himself on Kang's wife. Mara, I think was her name? It is. I wrote it down right there, Mara. I am... I, wow, is all I've got to say to that. I mean, that I am astonished that got into this. Especially given the circumstances. Usually when someone trying to force themselves on a woman happens in Trek, in more modern Trek, it's the bad guy of the week. Like, um... Uh, Man of the People 
and Troy, or uh, Shinzon and Troy, or uh, uh, the the violations. I forget the name of the character and Troy. I'm sensing a pattern here. The point is, I am really surprised this got in, and. Thankfully, they don't show much. In fact, actually, it's it's almost funny from a real-life perspective. Because what Walter Koenig does is he covers her mouth and then starts doing this like he's, you know, forcing kissing onto her. But because of the angle, you can't actually see, unless you're paying attention, that his hand's there. So he's actually not doing anything to the actress, in short, is my point. In other words, they they found a way to try and make it look like he was violating her without actually having the actor violate her. It's just a nice little touch that they managed there. Either way, what the crap? <sighs> what, ha what happens after this is they, they take her prisoner. And by prisoner, I mean they just kind of have her following around as they continue to put together events, and she ends up being an observer to all this, probably suspecting a trick. Notice that she is a science officer. That was mentioned already. That's why she was off, was she was going to go and try and fix the circuitry, right? And she is not stupid. In fact, she is the first Klingon to really figure out what's going on. I've heard at least one person say it's weird that she doesn't believe Kirk immediately, but I don't think that's being fair, to be completely honest. I think what she sees is a growing mountain of evidence that Kirk is being legitimate. And when she finally does believe him, that's not like, ah, oh, that's the thing that changes her mind. It's more like, that is the final piece of evidence that makes her convinced, okay, this has got to be legit now in the wake of all the other stuff she's already seen, including the guy who tried to attack Kirk over the whole going after the Klingons thing, and, you know, everything else that's been presented, including the, you know, the, the brain patterns of Chekhov, or the, the fact that McCoy had to apologize for that. Even Spock, by the way, I like this. McCoy restored himself of his own volition, and Spock actually apologizes back, too. It's a nice moment. It's just very, very brief, but it's a nice moment between the two, because they're friends. So, obviously, he does the big thing. It's like, ah, oh, no, if you don't call, we'll kill her. And Kang, of course, does not respond. And he's like, damn, he called my bluff. And she's like, what, bluff? You weren't going to kill me? No. And he acts so casual about it. No, of course not. Whatever you've heard is propaganda. They actually mentioned this earlier on. Let's see, where was that? Uh, atrocities, death camps, and tortured for secrets. Right. Kirk then mentions the possibility of mutual cooperation in existence is necessary here. She says something interesting, really interesting to me. She mentions that there are poor planets within the Klingon Empire and that we must continue expanding outwards. Oh, that's interesting. Obvious real-world parallels are obvious, but let's leave those at the door, because even within the fictional confines, well... All I'm going to say to that is the Cardassian Union. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave that topic alone, I think. Because holy crap. So we have another decent hallway fight. I've already mentioned that. And we have our first, we have another first. Our first intraship beaming. Also, this is the first time we established that Klingons have experience using hand-to-hand -hand bladed weapons. So that's established here. And I think that's... No, we also established where the engineering sh is roughly on the ship because Asterisk leaves through it as it's leaving. So that's kind of cool. We also get two Klingon quotes in this episode. I wrote them down over here. 4,000 throats may be cut in one night by a running man. And 
Only a fool fights in a burning house. Both of these quotes will actually be requoted in the future. I'm only mentioning all this because those quotes, the propaganda thing, the expansionist power thing, the bladed weapon thing, the... Uh, all, most of these things, I, I think there's like two or three I'm forgetting here, are things that will become part of Klingon culture and be referenced later to help build what will eventually become Klingon culture. Just fascinating to look at, as I've mentioned many times. Kirk says something. I just want to quote it, okay? Hear me out. The good old game of war, pawn against pawn, stopping the bad guys while somewhere some thing sits back and laughs and starts it all over again. Yeah. I don't feel the need to really expound on that quote. You can really see the intent that was put into it, and... That's a lot of human history right there, isn't it? I This is my final point. This is not a threat to be overcome. Not really. This is not a threat episode. It's not a... Th well, it's not a threat episode. It's not a theme episode. It's not a character piece. It's not a mystery. This is a thinker. Although you could argue this is a theme as well. The two are very close to each other. This is that idea of of, of what I just said, of the quote I just gave. That is the point of this episode. This this was written at the time to be very anti-Vietnam, specifically. But if you take that quote and apply it uh, down into the B.C. era from what we know of from history, it still applies just the same. And I think that's one of the final reasons this episode hits me so hard and so powerfully, because, holy crap, the ideas of such stoked hatred. I mean, this this thing is literally a hatred vampire. The asterisk is literally a hatred vampire. Nom, nom, nom. And we actually... Uh, there's this bit earlier, Kirk even says it during his rant. I didn't write down his rant, but it's something like, you know, we've all been given a target and a focus, and we've, getting a, we've been given a flag to wave, and he, he just, he, as he's going through the thing, it's like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. There are some reports from the Great War of soldiers who were confused when they, you know, when they interacted with each other in a peaceful manner about the fact that they were apparently both fighting for the exact same cause, because that's what the soldiers had been told. Thankfully, the original script did not get in. I said I'd mention it. The original script had them... This is not a joke. Literally singing songs to get rid of Asterisk, which, uh... Okay, that's a bit much. <laughs> I think if we get to the point of the Looney Tunes literally putting a flower in someone's gun, then we've probably gone a little bit too far. In fact, even as is, the end of the episode was just kind of eye-rolling, where they all do the laughter and force Asterisk out of the ship. Nevertheless... I liked this episode. It's a good performance with good guest stars and a very strong message, which is almost a universal human constant, regardless of the era in which it was written, or even designed for. This message is relevant now. As I record this, and I bet you money it will be relevant then, when you hear this two years from now. Ladies and gentlemen, looking forward to your thoughts. Cool.